Okay, welcome back to episode 11 of the uh, Bible Connection podcast. This is a weekly podcast. It follows our church's Bible reading plan that we might encourage you not to give up on reading your Bibles this year. So my name is Josh Williams. I'll be your facilitator. And with me are my good friends, Taylor Babcock. Hello. Brandon Stooksbury. Hey. And John Steinke. Hi. So guys, this week we are discussing the entirety of the book of Joshua. And I know we, we talked earlier, Brandon. You wanted uh, you wanted to discuss kind of the change of pace. We 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 we've gone through the Torah, and now we're in the the, the next section. What what do you got for us? Yeah. So so historically, we the, the Old Testament has been called the Tanakh, and the Tanakh is a is is a word consisting of three words: the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim. And we are entering as we finish the Torah. Um, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. We've moved on into this next section, the the Nevi'im, which begins with Joshua, and and so uh, uh, Stephen Dempster in his in his biblical theology of the of the Hebrew Bible um, talks about how self consciously we should read the prophets section in that we should read it in two sections. We should see. We should see the form, what he calls the former prophets, consisting of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, and they're continuing the storyline of the Torah from the conquest um, to the exile in Babylon. And then that we should see the, the, the next section, the latter prophets, as comprising of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the Twelve. And these are anthologies of prophetic speeches delivered largely during the events narrated in the second in, in the last half of the book of Kings. So as we're as you're reading the book of Joshua, you should you should see Joshua as self-consciously finding its beginning this next section of of the 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 of the of the Tanakh, the, the Nevi'im. This is this is the beginning. It's it's self-consciously written in that way. So mm-hmm. All right, cool. Appreciate that. All right, let's get to our first question. So, as we begin to read the book of Joshua, we see that before they cross the river into the promised land, the people once again send spies. What? Why are they doing this? Well, when they sent spies in the book of Numbers, um, they spent they sent spies because they were commanded by the Lord to do so. And when they sent the spies into the land, ten of the twelve came back and they had this horrible report. They said. Yeah, the land is nice. We really want it. There's land flowing with milk and honey. Look at these grapes. But we're terrified of these cities. Their fortified cities are, are too much for us. We'll never conquer them. And, the, and there's the land of the descendants of the Anakim and these, these great men, and their hearts melted before them. And when you get to the story of the two spies going into the land, I mean, in simple, the simple way to answer your question, Joshua said, hey, you two spies, go in the land. Scope it out. Check out that city, Jericho. Like they're on the other side of the river and they're ready to come in. But when they get there, they they end up being hidden by this woman Rahab, a prostitute, and she reports to them that now, um, verse eleven of chapter two, as soon as we heard of it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you, because of the Lord your God and the God that's in heaven above and on the earth beneath. And so now God has has reversed the. Um, the fear that was in the hearts of Israel, and he's put it into the hearts of the land of Canaan, and 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 brought the terror into them, so that so that the the Israelites might come in and, and take the land. Anybody else on spies? Yeah. Well, um, 
I've got more on. You're going to draw on Rahab. Rahab, Rahab, yeah. (laughs) Rahab. What am I saying? (laughs) Rahab. (laughs) Go ahead. We're going to to talk about Rahab now? Yeah, go ahead. All right. So, sorry, I'm still coming down from, or coming off a little bit of sickness here. So, so Joshua also, we we talked about uh, Joshua is written self-consciously as beginning this next section of the prophets. Also, Joshua should be in, should be written, 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 should be read um, as 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 seeing the theme of blessing and cursings coming from from Deuteronomy, and this next section in in uh, with with Rahab, we see Rahab. The structure of, of Rahab should sound really familiar because we Rahab is is there's there's actually a chiasm in the, in the text in in chapter in chapter two. It's pretty interesting. Um, um, and, and, and the center of this chiasm is the covenant uh, with uh, with Rahab and the spies. And then, um, but anyway, it's it's pretty interesting. But if you notice what happens with Rahab, the spies come to Rahab and they make this covenant with her, and she is told to put a scarlet thread out her window. And this is going to is going to the is going to signal to to Israel. That she and her household should be saved. Now, this should sound really, really familiar, because it's the same exact structure as the Passover. Because in the Passover, God tells Israel to put blood over the doorpost. Right? You know, scarlet, scarlet hanging out a window, blood on doorposts. Right? You know, similar. Similar colors, right? Mm-hmm. And this symbol is meant to is the the avengers of Israel, right? Are passing over Rahab and her household, right? So, so we should we should see this as is is self consciously written in that same way that you should think of the Passover when you're reading this. And and I say this really confidently, you know that that you know this is just so obvious from the text. I, I literally learned this yesterday. So, so if if you hear this and you're like, "Wow, I, I haven't seen that before," I was like, "Well, yeah, I, I hadn't until yesterday." So, you're, I'm I'm with you there. Um, but but in contrast to this blessing coming at Jericho, you know, moving forward a couple chapters, we also see cursing, um, um, cursing with an Ai, right? So. So um, in, in I'm I'm jumping ahead, and I'm sure we'll we'll, we'll move back some. But but Achan right Achan disobeys the Lord and the cursing of the Lord comes upon Achan and not just Achan, but in Achan's household. Mm-hmm. Just like with Rahab's faithfulness, her household is 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 saved. Achan, because of his sin, his household is cursed. You know, so we see blessing, blessing, and cursing, and then we'll, we'll see it especially in, as 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 we draw later into the later chapters of Joshua. But anyway, all right. So next question: the spies come back, right? This time they got a good report of the land, as opposed to the last time. And uh, but then we get this chapter about them crossing the Jordan River and then setting up memorial stones, and then they are circumcised, like. <laughs> What's what's going on here? Well, I know that Taylor wants to talk about them crossing the river and the memorial stones, but I, I need to bring us back to chapter one to something I want to talk about first, and then I'm going to pass it over to you. Is that one, Taylor? It. Yes, I would love for Okay, so in chapter one, um, which I do think kind of sets up 
um, before they cross the river. They're still in the plains of Moab. And you have the Lord speaking to Moses, uh, to, jo- to Joshua now, saying, Moses is dead. And there's no time for like mourning. Not, Moses is dead. Let's take a month of sadness. Moses is dead. Let's all weep and have a funeral. No, it's Moses is dead. So get up and arise and go over the Jordan, you and all the people. Suck and, it up, buttercup. And he says in verse 3, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread, every place it treads upon, I will give you, just as I promised to Moses. Now, what God's referencing here is when he promised Moses in Deuteronomy 11, verse 25, and in Deuteronomy 33, verse 29, that they would tread out on the land, and the Lord would give them the land. And it says in 33, 29, your enemies shall come fawning to you, and you shall tread upon their backs. And so... Let's not lose sight of the fact that this guy, Joshua, he used to be called Hosea, right? So what's up with this name Joshua? Why did Moses give him the name Joshua? This is the same name as our Lord and Savior. This is the name of Jesus. In um, Greek, Jesus, Iesus, is a Greekified, a Hellenized way of saying the Hebrew Yeshua, which means salvation, or Yahweh is salvation, that yeh from the beginning of Yeshua. And so here we have Joshua standing as a type, as a picture of Christ. And from the beginning of the Torah, we've been waiting on this descendant of Eve to come and crush the head of the serpent. And now we're hearing Joshua, this salvation, he's going to tread out the land. He's going to tread out the backs of these enemies as they're fawning over him. The land is about to be given, and he's going to picture Christ through this. And and we see this in the Psalms. So if you look at verse 8, it says, The book of the law shall not depart from your mouth. You shall meditate on it day and night. And Psalm 1 says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, stands in the way of sinners, sits and sees scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And then in Psalm 91, we also see, picking up from that Deuteronomy 33, 29 verse, which says, treading out on the backs of the enemies, we see that they're going to be treading on the on the head of the adder and the serpent. And so we could get lost in the weeds there. I want to echo what Brandon just said a second ago, how he just learned that stuff about Rahab. I, I'm Literally, as I'm studying, I'm seeing all these new things that I've never seen before in Joshua. I must have read Joshua like a dozen times, and this is the first time I'm seeing some of these connections. So it's not that like, oh, how do you, how do you see this, John? I don't see this first time I read it. I'm just, I'm blown away. The more I look at this text, the more I see that Christ is being pictured throughout the entire book of Joshua, and we should be seeing and focusing on the person of Christ as we see God's faithfulness to the people of Israel, mm-hmm. leading us to Taylor. Well, that was a that was a great explanation. I love listening to that, and um, that it's such an amazing thing to see. Uh, but back to the question that <clears throat> that Josh was asking about crossing the Jordan. So the Hebrew people um, they they crossed the Red Sea. And then now this is the next generation of people and they're crossing Jordan. So the Jordan in Hebrew, the word is Yarden. Uh, just the J is a Y, uh, Yarden. Um, and the word means to descend. Um, so if you look back in Exodus 32, when it says that Moses was delaying from coming down the mountain, the word come down is coming from or translated and coming from that Hebrew word Yarden, to come down, uh, to descend. So uh, the Jordan River is a very fast flowing river. Um, it moves really fast, and if you read within the text as they're crossing it, the water is high. So, um, oh, as reference, just to know how steep it is, the Tennessee River um, drops 453 feet over the course of 652 miles. The Jordan River is 17 times steeper than that. Oh, wow. So, it, it is, it's actually a much smaller river than what a lot of us would imagine. Mm-hmm. I'd recommend looking it up. 
Um, but it is significant, uh, and it does move fast. So when you see uh, the Hebrew people there about to cross it, there is a faith uh, aspect to them crossing it. So the banks of the Jordan River are steep. Um, you don't just walk into the Jordan River, specifically at this location that they probably would have crossed. You wouldn't just walk into it like you would the beach, to your ankles, your knees, and then to your waist. You're either all in or you're all out. Like you, when you step into it, it's a steep bank. You're going right into it. So the priests, um, as they're carrying the ark, which, by the way, Hebrews probably did not know how to swim. Um, so I'm assuming the priests probably did not know how to swim. But as they're going into the water, the water does not stop until their feet touch the water. Therefore, it takes an act of faith on their part to trust what God is telling them. Otherwise, they're going immediately into this water and drowning. So in their eyes, if they don't believe God, they're going immediately in and they're going to drown because the water is high, it's fast moving, and they can't swim. And on top of that, they're carrying the ark of the Lord. So there's a faith aspect to it that when you compare them coming out of Egypt, um, in, in, in Sinai and a lot of the tests, it's... God does something, and then they um, they see what God has done, and then they they act on behalf of that. Well, God right here wants them to take the first step. Um, so there's a progression of their faith that God is wanting to see. Not just God does something, and then, oh, I see it, and then now I believe, but rather I want you to take the first step, and I want you to, 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 to display that. Um, I think we're going to see a little bit more of that when we get to Jericho and AI, yeah. too. There's kind of a reversal of God's expectations. Um, what about the twelve standing stones, though? Oh, so the the, tw- the twelve not twelve standing stones, the the standing stones uh, that we read in the text. So yeah, sorry, I said that wrong. <laughs> uh, well, there are, and I can't remember what other passage I was thinking of, but the the ancient cultures um, in, in that region would erect large standing stones to commemorate a significant event. So if there was a battle here, okay, we won battle here, and we're going to stand the stone up to remember that. Or if we made a covenant here, or if we did that, it was it was common for not just the Israelites, but a lot of these other people. And so the Israelites, you can see that they adopted this practice long before they entered the land of Canaan. If you go all the way back to Genesis, um, I think chapter 28, uh, Jacob set uh, up stone pillars at Bethel to remember his powerful dream. Uh, after the receiving the Ten Commandments, Moses built 12 standing stones at the base of Mount Sinai. So we see that before they're entering the land of Canaan. So this is a recognized practice that they always they already do. So as you read through the book of Joshua, there are seven times that Joshua is erecting standing stones, uh, pointing to really God's dynamic power in his work that he's doing. Um, and right here, the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River, they stand those stones. Um, and actually later on, and at the very end in chapter 24, when the covenant was renewed, they also erect standing stones there. So what do they do? Um, If you look back at it and you were no longer at that event, even if you didn't know what it was, you knew that something significant happened there. Um, So realize where Israel lives. And I wasn't going to talk about this a little bit later, but I think it fits here. Israel lived in the land of Canaan. If If you look at a map, where the land of Canaan is between the powers of the world of that day. So you believe Egypt, Syria, Persia, Babylon, the Hittites, the, the, the Western powers of the world, Canaan is right smack dab in the middle of everything. So if you want to get to Egypt to do trade with Babylon, you're going to travel right through Canaan. If you want to get to anywhere in the world, 
of that day, you're going to travel through that land and you're going to see those standing stones and you're going to have a testament to that. But even more than that, uh, not just standing stones. God, back in um, Exodus, gives Israel a commission. And that commission is to be a kingdom of priests, a people who live so much like God that the world can see who he is through their actions and their lives. So God doesn't want them at the corner of the map, but rather puts them in the middle so that the whole world can walk by and see who they are. So something we've mentioned before is that 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 call to be kingdom of priests, it's the same call as the Great Commission um, to go and make disciples of all nations. That's that's like that's the commission that Christ has given us um, from from that um, in, in Israel being kingdom of priests. But but then we have in Acts, you know, you know, go and, and preach my name in Jerusalem and Judea and to Samaria and then to the ends of the earth. If if there was a place here in the ancient world in order to to spread God's glory, to expand His His image from the garden, you know, it, it, I know they're not in the garden anymore, but if they're going to be spreading God's glory throughout the world, this is the place to begin setting up these pillars and these stones and 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 inhabiting the land. Yeah, and, and as, as a matter of fact, First uh, um, Peter two references this that. W- uh, we are to be living stones or living testimonies. Mm-hmm. So not just that it was was then and there, but the body of Christ is to be that living example of what that uh, that standing stone represented in that day. We as the members of the body of the church are to be testament that God did something significant. That's a great um, point. Yeah. And um, uh, back to, well, I'll get to this later. I had some other stuff I'll talk about on the next question. But <laughs> I just want to mention something real quick. Like, for instance, before they crossed the Jordan River in chapter 3, it says, Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. Then, you know, we're, we're talking about them being circumcised. In, uh, in, that, in, that, in, in, in the section in chapter 5 about of, of this, this halt in the text should make us remind us of, of how, how Moses is going along and the Lord stops him and is going to kill him because he's not circumcised his sons, right? Mm-hmm. So Israel, unfaithful Israel in the wilderness, has not had their children circumcised, right? And they're halted right here so that they can be circumcised and be a kingdom and priests. Mm-hmm. So, so it's, it's exactly what Taylor was just saying. They're setting themselves apart, right, for holiness yeah. is exactly what they're doing. So moving on to... Uh, the third question here. So in Joshua's or Joshua chapter six through twelve, we see the people of Israel do battle against the many different kings within the land. So how do the battles and alliances and miracles that take place teach and instruct us as we read, or how can we learn about God from all this? So I would like to say one thing, and 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 I'm I'm I'm, I'm very um, passionate about. I sound like a broken record on repeating these themes over and over and over again. Um, and, and here we find ourselves, you know, this, you know, the conquest of, of the land of Canaan, which is hearkening back to remember when, when Noah, you know, he, he, he gets drunk, right. And, and his son comes and, and uncovers his, the text says uncovers his nakedness. And that son becomes the father of, of Canaan and that there's this judgment pronounced on them back in Genesis. Um, so, and we see the unfolding of that judgment now is coming about through um, through the, the, the Israel's conquest of the land, but also 
this is there. There are two pointers to what I'm about to say. Um, one one is in Joshua eight thirteen that that we should also see this as the conquest of the land is crushing this. You know, back in Genesis three fifteen that the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the serpent, right? And and how that unfolds through person after person, ultimately, you know, teleologically pointing, you know, topologically pointing to Christ as the ultimate one who crushes Satan's head. But we see Israel is doing this as a as a, as a whole. And we see it in, in Joshua 8.13, and you, you, you won't see it, and, and I didn't see it until I studied this week. Um, in 8.13, Joshua and, and Israel are are um, are there's some some deception going on here, and how and how the Lord is going to uh, rout this enemy is pretty interesting. But in eight thirteen, you see you see it says um, so they uh, stationed the forces. The main encampment was the north, the city, and its rear guard west of the city. But Joshua sent that night in the valley. Um, well, it, you can you can read on to see what what how how Joshua and in in the, the Israel there defeat this enemy here. But what's interesting is notice in the ESV translates it as rear guard. So the word behind re, rear guard here is is the word for heel. And what's interestingly about this, and it, I'm, I'm I may sound super smart right now. I'm literally just quoting smart people. Like I'm not. <laughs> I, I, I learned this also. This Don't worry. Week. Nobody thinks you're that smart. <laughs> yeah. Uh, thank you. Um, but this is the word heal, and this is the only time it's not translated as literally heal. Hmm. But it's 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 you know or, you know it's it's kind of um, dynam- dynamically equivalented. Uh, dynamic equivalence translation here, and what's interesting is that that it's it, it's the text is kind of picturing this is how Israel is putting their heels on the necks right of 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 the serpent right, and that this is how they're going to to crush them. But what's interesting is the language gets even more specific in chapter ten when. Israel, when Joshua treads out these five kings, and I'm, I know I'm, I'm jumping ahead, and, and, and we'll, we'll move back, but I just want us to, want us to see this this imagery here because it's it's self consciously alluding back to Genesis three fifteen. But he says um, Joshua says, "Come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings." Chapter ten, verse twenty four. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah, yes, yes. Thank you for bringing that up. But come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings. Then they will. They came near and put their necks. Their, I'm sorry, their feet on their necks. The, this imagery right here could not. It could not be any, any more clear allusion back to Genesis three fifteen that the seed of the woman, Israel as a body, as a whole, is crushing the head of these. You know these these kings um, as as serpent right um, and this. Yeah, we should we should see the conquest of, of the land as as an unfolding of that theme. So thematically, I think that's a beautiful way to unfold what we looked at. It's in the first beautiful chapter. that they're they're crushing the heads of these kings. I'm just kidding. Uh, John. Ask I'm Eve. Kidding. Ask Eve who who wants to come out of the garden. Know, yeah, know, I'd I'd say it's it's beautiful to yeah, crush yeah. the head of the serpent. But um, you know, that's a beautiful way to unfold the biblical theological um, view of the book of Joshua. That how how we see Christ unfolding throughout the text, but. 
in a, in a more direct, like how, how were the Israelites dealing with these things kind of way, what, what are we supposed to take of these miracles? Well, I think it's what Taylor was mentioning earlier. There's a progression of how the Lord is testing out their faith. So just like they had to take the first step into the Jordan, which I'd never thought about that picture before. That's really a cool way to think about it. When they come to um, Jericho, they're going to be taking a lot of steps. They're going to be walking in circles. They're going to be blowing on trumpets. And the whole point that they're going to have is the Lord's going to miraculously have battle. There's not going to be any doubt in their intellect after they see the walls come a-tumbling down, whether the Lord is going to fight their battles. Walls don't just fall when you blow trumpets. However, the how, Lord... How many people are doing the dance right now when you said that? <laughs> I don't even know what the dance is. And the walls of Josh. Anyway, never mind. Yeah, let's get this. Please sing it. Sing it. You got a nice no, mic? Man. No. <laughs> My sick voice. Anyway. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's your sick voice that's keeping you from it. Yeah. But um, as as the walls come tumbling down, like the, the people are tested not intellectually whether they're going to think God did that. Now they're being tested in their desires, right? Mm. Burn it all. Yes, even the gold and the nice robes and the carpets. Burn it all. And and this man, Achan, he can't do it, right? He steals. And even even though later on he repents, his punishment is, is very severe. Oh, Him yeah. and his whole family, like you said, in contrast to Rahab, they're all stoned to death. And then you get this battle with Ai. And now it's the opposite test. Now they're allowed to plunder everything. You know, once they've been made right again and they've and they've dealt with the sin, but they have to actually do the strategizing and the fighting against these people. And so there's there's different ways that the that the people are being tested out. And after they get hoodwinked by the Gibeonites, um, that's a really interesting story. And you know, the crusty bread and the and the tattered clothing, you get this this story that Brandon's talking about where they stand on the necks of the kings. But it's one of the strangest, richest chapters of the Bible. I mean, I feel like I've read this chapter like so many times in my life, and I, I don't know what to make of some of this stuff. I um, mean, there's so much here. So when I was going through high school into college, I went to Brandon's Bible study for the first time, and he was talking about this guy named Melchizedek. And I was blown away that this little figure obscured in chapter 14 of Genesis was such a significant thing in the book of Hebrews. And so, if you guys don't know, we talked about him a little bit in the first episode of this podcast. Melchizedek is a guy who was king of Jerusalem in the time of Abram. His name translates to king of righteousness. He was called king of peace. It's this weird, where did this guy come from? How is he here? And the author of Hebrews says that that Christ um, is, is a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Well, here we get to chapter 10, and you have this new king of Jerusalem, and his name is Adonai Zedek. And I was like, Adonai, I've heard that in church before when we're singing. Isn't that like a name of God? And it means Lord of righteousness. But he's a bad guy. Adonai Zedek gets these other kings together to fight against Israel. Well, they're really going to strike like a snake. You know, they're going to strike at the Gibeonites on the outside of the camp. But they end up fighting against Israel. And God pours out his judgment against them. Hail falling from the sky, panic in their camps, the sun in the, in the sky standing still. God is, is judging this, these kings, and they go and they flee. And once they've fled into a cave, Joshua pulls them out, and like Brandon said, they're all putting their heels over their necks. And when they're slaughtered, he hangs them on a tree until sunset, and then he puts them into a cave and rolls a stone in front of it. Now, I'm still working out a lot of this imagery, and I don't want to make conclusions that are not there in the text. But what I want to emphasize to, to people as they're, as they're listening is that God is working out his, his purposes and his, and his sovereign hand in the midst of all of these kings. It, it says in Joshua that the Lord was not allowing these kings to flee before them because he was hardening their hearts. 
And what I see going on here is that Christ one day is going to be the ultimate fulfillment for Israel in, in many ways. Yes, he's going to stand forever as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. He's going to be the true king of peace and righteousness, bringing intercession and covenant with God's people. But he's also going to be the better Adonizedek. He is going to die, not because of his own sin, but he's going to be cursedly hung on a tree. He's going to be thrown into a cave with a stone rolled in front of it, and God's judgment will be poured on him, and the, and the true eternal blessings of the land will be given. And so between these two pictures, we, we're seeing God working out so many purposes in the midst of his people. Um, I, I don't know how to transition to this, but um, there are, so there are some very important strategic geographical locations and cities in which the Israelites uh, are coming across. And in doing that, I want to point out a, a pretty important word um, that, that we should know, and that's the word tell, T-E-L. So you'll notice that reading through your text, uh, tell Megiddo or tell Gezer, and what that word tell means, um, it, it's sometimes translated as city, but that's not exactly what it is. It's a type of archaeological mound that is man-made over many generations. So what happens is there's points of strategic importance or in, uh, um, whether it's along a trade route or along a river and uh, a civilization will build a city there. And in that city, because the, the building components are, are frail and after war or whatever, they'll, they'll collapse and then they'll turn to rubble and dirt. And rather than the city moving all of that or moving location, they'll build them right on top of that. And that same thing happens generation after generation after generation until you have this man-made massive mound in which you have um, a city built atop of a gigantic hill. And you'll see these all over Israel because there's certain strategic places um, that these are built because they are of importance. And you'll notice that when Israel comes in to the land of Canaan, they are conquering some of these locations. So as you come across the text, you'll notice that there's uh, Hazor, Megiddo, Gezer. Um, these are being conquered by the Israelites for strategic importance. So um, what I mentioned earlier was that God um, placed Israel that they would have this great opportunity to influence the world with uh, communicating who God is and living that out amidst them. Um, but it just wasn't any place. It, um, specifically, if you look at Israel, if you look at a map this time, there's this route called the Via Maris, basically route of the sea. Um, and the Via Maris went from Egypt right through the land of Canaan um, and then onward north and eastward to other empires of the world. Um, and three of the cities on that trade route were Hazor, Megiddo, and Gezer. And specifically, I think in uh, chapter 10, you see that they're facing the king of Gezer, and they, they conquer it. So this trade route is the same trade route um, that they live many centuries later that Jesus is actually living along in Capernaum. The Via Maris is still there, and it goes up and down in that same area, uh, and the same principle is there. God put them along the Via Maris, the trade route that allowed for influence of the world um, through trade and through communication and just being present where everybody from all ends of the map 
from the four corners of the earth are coming together and you put them on display along this trade route, which you see early on in Joshua, which they're conquering the cities of and placing their people along this road that they may influence the world. So um, alongside that, you'll see that um, if you look in, uh, it's referenced more than once, but I think in Revelation, you'll see uh, the Battle of Armageddon in the Valley of Megiddo. Uh, well, Megiddo was another one of these locations which was strategic. And to say that you are fighting for the battle of Megiddo or Armageddon was a battle for control of the world because they knew that the Via Maris, the strategic route, was of vital, import- <coughs> vital importance and has significance in influencing the world and specifically the world in trade. So God put them along the, the crossroads of the map that they may be able to communicate their message once again. Okay, uh, just real quick, uh, specifically, I'm going to ask you, John, to, to tackle this one, but just real quick, chapters 13 through 22, we see a breakdown of the inheritance and the division of the land for the people. What 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 kind of purpose does this serve? Like, what what, what do we be, need to be thinking about as we're, we're reading these? Well, as the, as the battles against the kings wrap up, you have these northern campaigns and these southern campaigns detailed. And in a general sense, what happens here is Joshua takes the people across the river and he takes them up into the hill country, which is the very center of the promised land, this, these Judean hills, which aren't the Judean hills until Judah settles in them. But, you know, the, these hill country in the middle. And he, from there, starts working out in all directions and he scatters out the, the opposition of the land. And so there's a time of rest, there's no war going on, and he then says to the people, it's time to settle. Mm-hmm. You know, this tribe, you get this land. This tribe, you get this land. This tribe, you get this land. Reuben and Gad, you guys wanted to go over to the river. You've been faithful. You've helped us conquer. You can go back to the, to the east of the river of the Jordan. You can settle. But he commands them, when you do, take hold of the whole land. And unfortunately, tragically, um, we see that they're already being signs of unfaithful. It says, um, as Judah conquers their, their territory, verse 63 of chapter 15, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive them out, so they still dwell there to this day. And it says of Ephraim and Manasseh, um, the, um, they took possession of the cities, but the Canaanites persisted in dwelling in the land. And the people of Israel grew strong, and they put them to work instead of devoting them out of the land. And so we're already going to see this. We're going to pick up with it a little bit more in the book of Judges. But in this area where um, what's, the, what's the purpose of this inheritance? Why is this in the scriptures? We can see God is faithful in a historical grounded moment. He has fulfilled the promises to Abraham. He has both made the people as numerous as the stars, and now he has given the land to the people of Israel. Very good. Okay, last question, and we're, we're quickly running out of time. But in the closing chapters of Joshua, they include some of the most famous verses in all the Bible. For instance, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, right? Uh, what does Joshua mean by this statement, and what is the larger message he is giving to the people as the book comes to a close? So so I would, I would like to begin the what the answer to this with pointing back to the beginning of Joshua, Mm -hmm. the commission that Moses gives to Joshua, um, be strong and courageous. Um, and, and the, the, the book of Joshua kind of ends in this in, in similar to the same way, but some have argued that there is massive kingship language in Joshua. Now Joshua is never called a king, but if you just 
read read Joshua and look at how Joshua is is presented in the text. It is very kingly. You know what what is the lineage of Joshua, right? Um, how do the people serve Joshua? What hit Joshua's commands? Um, the, the the conquest of Joshua. Now think about that, and think about how David, as David is dying, right? Um, and David is instructing his son Solomon in, in, in wisdom language of how to be a king. Who does he go to? What does he think about? In First in Kings chapter two, um, it says, First Kings chapter two verse one, it says, "When David's, David's time to die drew near, he commanded Solomon his son, saying, "I'm about to go the way of all the earth." It sounds very similar to the end of, of, of Moses and also Joshua. But what does he tell Solomon? Be strong and show yourself a man, and keep charge of, of keep the charge of the Lord your God by walking in all of His ways and keeping His statutes, commandments, and rules, and the testimony the testimonies that is is written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. That the Lord may establish His word that He spoke concerning me, saying, "If your sons pay close attention." Um, so, so the, it sounds very, very similar to what what is is spoken of in Joshua, and 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 the end of Joshua is 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 playing out as we continue on in in the Bible. But I'm sure you wanted to talk about as for me and my house will serve the Lord. Well, it's kind of you know that that shows how Joshua and his house served the Lord. But what does it look like for us? Because he says, "Choose this day whom you will serve," and so. This whole book is named after one of the two spies, Joshua, who went into the land and had a faithful report. But let's not forget, smack dab in the middle of the book, what it looks like to be faithful in all God's house. And it's going to be this guy named Caleb. Caleb was 40 when the spies brought back a bad report. And he was faithful, but he had to walk around in the wilderness for 40 years because of the faithlessness of his fellow men. And so when he comes into the land, he's 85 years old, chapter 14. And he says, when it's time for them to divide up the land and the inheritance, he said, I'm as strong as I was when I was 40. I'm ready. Put a sword in my hand. Where's the land of the Anakim? Where are they? Those guys that the other spies thought were giants, they were too terrified? I'm going to take that hill today. Mm -hmm. And as an 85-year-old man, he charges up the hill. He takes all the descendants of Anak. He destroys them. And he starts bringing up the challenge to other men. Who's brave enough to do it to that hill? He gets to marry my daughter. And so if you want to really show what it looks like to serve the Lord, right? Choose this day whom you will serve. For me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Delight in God's law day and night. Be strong. Act like a man. Stand up. Set the example for the people around you. Have faith to take what the Lord has given you and call others around you and encourage them to do the same. And, and this is what it's going to look like when communities begin acting like kingdom priests, not just priests, kings, dwelling over the land, ruling over what God has given them. And so I would encourage and exhort everyone listening to this podcast to, to follow the example of Caleb and Joshua. Hmm. Way to finish. Well, Way to finish. well, guys, thank you so much for tuning in. And my good friends here, thank you for taking the time to study and, and do this every week. But Listen, you, you guys can share questions with us, and, and we really want you to do this. So please, our email is thebibleconnectionbdbc at gmail.com, or you can simply leave a comment on the video on YouTube. Um, and, of course, like I say every week, 
If you see us in church, if you got our phone numbers, however you can get in touch with us, ask us some questions. We'd love to have, we'd love to answer them. So uh, that's it for uh, episode 10 or 11, excuse me. And we'll see you on episode 12.